Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 6th, 2016, and my guest is David Galerner, professor of computer science at Yale University, chief scientist at Mirror Worlds Technologies, contributing editor at the Weekly Standard. His latest book and the subject of today's conversation is The Tides of Mind, Uncovering the Spectrum of Consciousness. David, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks. At the heart of your book is the idea of a spectrum of consciousness, of an up-and-down spectrum in particular. Explain what you mean by that. Well, it's um, it's usual for people to think of the mind as a static object. I don't really mean people. I mean uh, professionals, psychologists, uh, philosophers, uh, neurobiologists tend to think of the mind as as static. It's, uh, it's either conscious or it's unconscious. It's awake or asleep. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it, if you're thinking, um, that's, um, that's all the descriptive information you need to know. You're thinking, you're just thinking. If you're conscious, you're just conscious. But in fact, I, I think almost everybody who's thought about it realizes um, certainly every child realizes that you think in different ways at different times. You're um, uh, better attuned to uh, to um, certain mental tasks at some times than at others. Um, we're almost all best at uh, careful, analytic, step-by-step, maybe mathematical-type thought when uh, our energy is high, when we're fresh, when we're alert, um, our men- mental energy is pumped up. Um, on the other hand, we have to be in a very different frame of mind if we are, if we want to go to sleep or we find ourselves drifting off to sleep. Um, clearly the kind of thought, uh, we're doing while we drift off to sleep, our minds are active. It's not as if they're a blank, but the kind of thought that leads us into the stages that lead in turn into sleep is very different from what you would do if you were working on a spreadsheet or solving a calculus problem or doing some sort of piece of analysis. And connecting these two endpoints or these two um, uh, alternatives, the, the kind of focused analytical, rational, logical, reasonable thought on the one hand and the, uh, the drifting free, associ- free associational thought that, uh, that we find on our way to sleep um, between focused, active thought on the one hand and uh, thought that is largely passive that happens to us when our minds are drifting when we fall when we when, when we are falling asleep and when we ultimately fall asleep, we're not taking action. We can't make ourselves fall asleep. These are things that happen to us. So between uh, the active uh, uh, analytical side of the spectrum and the passive memory-intensive drifting part of the spectrum, there is uh, an entire range of, of, uh, of different moods, different types of consciousness, different approaches to the mental world that surround us, different ways in which our mind operates, different relationships between the mind and memory, uh, an entire spectrum that changes continuously throughout the day and into the night, too, as we sleep. And I should add that you call the more alert, focused, analytical problem solving kind of the up range. And the down is the more drowsy where thinking happens to us rather than us feeling like we are in control. I've I've spoken of the up spectrum end as the alert, wide awake end and the down spectrum end as the the drowsier, sleepier, and then sleep and dreaming end. You argue one of the more Fascinating. This is really an utterly fascinating book. It's it's a challenging book. It's full of just very very different perspectives on all kinds of aspects of of our mental life as well as our as our culture. But you've talked about this cycle certainly through the day that you 
end up in a drowsier state before you go to sleep. Then you sleep, then you wake up, maybe perhaps somewhat drowsy, but eventually you wake up and you're in the more alert state. But you also make a similar cycle for our evolution as human beings from childhood to adulthood. So explain how how you see that. Well, this is an interesting consequence. I mean, I regard it as interesting. It's not, it wasn't my initial focus. And when uh, I first noticed it, I thought it was uh, not there, but it kept uh, demanding attention. At, at first, I, I cared about the day, the course of the day, the way, the way our thought changes over the course of the day, which seemed to me very important to the way we led our lives day by day, every day, a matter of, of real significance. But one can't help thinking about, um, at times, the development of children. And and the fact is, if we turn the spectrum upside down, or we, we look at the shift from uh, highly focused analytical abstract thought, which we can manage when we're wide awake, to the kind of um, uh, vividly imagined, um, uh, illogical, more passive, uh, but more sensual thought that leads us into sleep, uh, we see clear relationships to the way children's Infants and children's thinking is thought to develop. This is a complicated topic because you can you can learn only so much by speaking directly with young children and only so much by observation. But it certainly appears to be the case that children develop an ability to handle abstractions. And this goes back to the classic work of Piaget and even earlier work. People, de- children develop the ability to handle abstractions. Gradually in childhood, it's not something one is born with, just as one is not born with a capacity to do arithmetic or even to handle language. Well, one may be born with a capacity to handle language, but not with the practical skill of using language. So these um, the various abilities to deal in abstractions, beginning with language, uh, moving on to uh, reading and writing and arithmetic and the classical things children need to learn, and then... Uh, moving from there on to abstract, into abstract thought, logical, rational reasoning analysis, going from the uh, pre-language phases of um, of young childhood uh, up through the ages of five, six, seven, eight, nine, when we are um, adjusting ourselves to the cultural world in which we live, the language world, the uh, the analytical, arithmetic, mathematical world, we are developing our ability to deal in abstractions. And it just so happens that every day we retrace that pattern in reverse. This is, um, this is the kind of resemblance that modern science is uh, heavily biased against. And I was, um, as part of modern science, was very reluctant to, uh, to see anything there. Um, the uh, the idea that uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, the idea that, let me say in broader terms, the idea that developmental processes over a long period of time uh, reflect changes over a much shorter time period was something that science in the 19th and earlier 20th centuries was fascinated by, uh, turned out to be gigantically oversold and has been out of fashion now for generations, really for, I don't know, half a century, for a long, long time. But um, nonetheless, uh, if, uh, if bias in fashion and science is a huge topic that people have not grasped um, firmly enough, we tend to be science worshipers and we tend to be uh, more or less blind to the fact that science has its own fads and fashions and prejudices and inabilities to see clearly. And uh, in, in this case, um, I, I think the resemblance is there. And uh, I think it tells us something about the nature of the spectrum and gives us some hints about what to look for in, in more detail as we study the development of children and their, their growing uh, capacity to deal in abstractions that is to deal with memories not of a specific concrete object or instance or person, but to deal with memories that abstract over many people. Um, uh, everybody I've met in the first grade is like this, or all houses with wood decks seem to be in, uh, seem to have bird feeders on their back 
at their back doors or something like that. The ability to deal in abstractions, which is really the ability to think, there's no difference between generalizing and thinking, is, um, is something we don't understand enough and something the spectrum can help us understand as we watch our own ability to think in abstractions crumble every day. The fact is you can try and make yourself uh, prove a theorem or put together an impressive abstract, logical, rhetorically impressive argument at the point that you're falling asleep, but it just won't work. You don't have the mental capacity at that point in the cycle down the spectrum. So we need to see these resemblances. I think there's a lot we have to learn about both the development of children and our own daily cognitive life. I mean, it's a subject that almost doesn't exist. If you tapped a psychologist or a philosopher or a neurobiologist on the shoulder and said, tell me about my my daily cognitive life, you're most likely to get a blank stare. I mean, you're you're alive. That's it. You know, we can tell you about thinking, but there's nothing to uh, there's nothing to discuss in the course of the day and what happens over a day. So um, um, let me. But but that's just as obvious as the change uh, of, of of developing children. So uh, fads and fashions in science, and particularly social sciences, are a big uh, theme of this program. So it's a very uh, comfortable idea here. But I, I, I'm a little bit uh, puzzled by this uh, the spectrum, and in particular, thinking about only myself, which of course is the thing that I'm best at thinking about about terms of how consciousness works. When I'm working on a problem, when I have a problem to solve, when I'm trying to think about, say, just to pick an example, uh, I'm going to give a talk and I I can't figure out what the sequence of the argument should be that that would be the most effective. Or maybe I'm preparing for this interview and I want to figure out uh, what's the key thing I want to make sure I get across and what are some of the, what's an analogy I want to make sure I make or something like that. I often find myself, as I fall asleep, focusing on those, and of course, deliberately, they don't, they don't fall into my mind. Uh, I, I say to myself, what am I going to think about now? And I think about those things, and sometimes I have to get up out of the dark and with a piece of, get a piece of paper or find my phone and make a note because I've solved that problem. And I also like the idea that while I'm asleep, the problem is going to get worked on. Uh, and let me give one more example. Uh, when I'm doing create what I would call creative work, say writing the lyrics to a song uh, or a poem, um, trying to think of a plot twist for a novel, uh, I'm highly alert and focused. And yet you associate uh, storytelling, emotion, feeling, creativity more with a down spectrum, which is drowsier. Do you understand my my confusion there? What am I missing in what you're trying to say? So that's two questions. Yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> One's about going to sleep. There, there, and it's really the same question. Sometimes when I'm drowsy, I'm very focused. How is that? Right. Um, two two good points. One of which has to do with the um, with the nature of creative work that we do, and the other has to do with the delicacy of the mental balance that you need for creativity in order to be creative. You're your memory has to be swinging around with freedom, but you've got to be sufficiently alert to notice what you're doing, what you're thinking about. The, the first issue is is important. I, um, you might be uh, nearly asleep when uh, you find yourself thinking about some problem or other, maybe in a new in a new way or in a useful way or an interesting way, and you have to get up and jot things down. Um, I think um, the, the the balance of the evidence suggests that the the new thinking, um, the uh, the useful uh, creative thinking we do lower down on the spectrum, closer to sleep, tends to be driven not by our our, our ability to think up new things so much as our openness to our own minds, our willingness to accept what our minds put forward without jumping the gun, uh, uh, censoring our own thoughts, um, uh, uh, quickly dismissing ideas that we've had some reason to dismiss in the past without looking into them. Um, What happens is we approach sleep, we drop our guard. Um, We don't pay as careful attention to what thoughts are admitted into consciousness. Usually when we're wider awake, we are very 
uh, alert to what we allow into consciousness. There are thoughts that um, are upsetting or painful, and there are also thoughts that are just a waste of time as far as we're concerned. And we are quick to reject them. We have very, uh, we, we very well-disciplined minds up spectrum. On the other hand, the thoughts that we need in order to make progress, anyway, the thoughts I need in order to make progress in, 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 in writing a piece or uh, putting together a talk, as an example you give, or, or uh, doing work of that sort, is often a matter of getting over hurdles I've erected myself uh, thinking freely, uh, clearing away my tendency to turn away from a promising path um, too quickly without exploring it. And uh, the enormous value of thinking about things for me when I am tired is that I'm not on, in guard dog mode and my thoughts can flow freely. And often they wind up, not often, but occasionally they wind up flowing into fruitful directions Correct. where they would not have flowed if I had been editing, Correct. if I had been editing and censoring my thoughts. And it is the unedited. I mean, I, I think you'll find that for every occasion on which you get up with an exciting, with a thought that's so exciting, you don't want to lose it. You want to write it down or, 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 or put it down in some way. There are a hundred occasions on which you think of, on which your thoughts are nonsense in which they are swirling around in no particular direction. Yes, they aren't going any, any place <laughs> in particular. Of course, we remember the significant ones. We yeah, remember true. the ones when we've actually yeah. accomplished something. It's, it's only, the but, truth is, it's only about a handful of times that I get up, uh, like that in the in the middle in the middle of the day, and I will also in the middle of the night. And I'll also add that I occasionally take a twenty to twenty five minute nap in the afternoon, and every once in a while, as I prepare for that nap, which I find uh, delicious, it's a couple times a week maybe. Uh, I will occasionally have an idea that causes me to jump up and not take a nap, but most of the time, I go to sleep. <laughs> And I enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, right. Well, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. And um, by, by, by laying off the heavy-handed editing, which we all do, we, we make opportunities for ourselves. I mean, we've got so much more in our memories than we're generally willing to, uh, willing to acknowledge. Um, I mean, we take very, very gentle care of ourselves. We don't want to damage ourselves. You know, the... There are so many thoughts that are somewhat painful, upsetting, embarrassing, and we don't, we just don't think them. We're not, uh, we're, we're, we're not set up to entertain painful thoughts. We're set up rather to suppress them, and we're very good at suppressing unpleasant thoughts. Let's and, um, uh, you know, this, this work goes back to, to Freud and, um, uh, the gross unpopularity of Freud today is a fashion that's been, Moving, lifting a little bit, a sort of a fog over our own intellectual history that has um, obscured our view of um, some of the most important philosophical work of the past century and a half. It's changing a little bit, but um, uh, probably not enough. And uh, just as Freud wrote about uh, our tendency to suppress painful ideas, Freud himself is a painful idea who, you know, our tendency has been to suppress. <laughs> you also mentioned, which is important, the fact that um, you have a focused sense when you're working on uh, lyrics or, or writing poetry, let's say. And um, uh, I've argued, on the other hand, that you need to be well down spectrum in order to get creativity started. That is, you can't you can't be at your creative peak when you've just got up in the morning, your attention is focused and you're tapping your pencil. You want to get to work and start, you know, getting through the day's business at a good clip. It's not the mood in which one can make a lot of progress writing poetry. But that's exactly why, that's one of the important reasons why creativity is no picnic. It's not... <laughs> easily achieved. I think it's fair to say that everybody is creative on occasion in a certain way, in, in, in a sort of daily, in the, in the daily round of things. We come up with new solutions to old problems routinely. But the kind of creativity that yields um, uh, poetry that other people value, that yields uh, 
uh, original work in any area is highly valued, is more highly valued than any other human project because it's rare. And uh, it's rare not because it requires a gigantic IQ, um, but because it requires a certain kind of balance, which is which is not something everybody can achieve. On the one hand, um, it's it's not my observation, it's a general observation. The creativity often hinges on inventing new analogies. When I think of uh, a new resemblance, that um, a, a new resemblance and an analogy between uh, between uh, a tree and a tent pole, which is the new analogy, let's say, that nobody else has ever thought of before. I take the new analogy and perhaps can use it in a creative way, or one of a million other, a billion, a trillion other possible new analogies. Now, what makes me come up with a new analogy? How, what, what allows me to do that? It generally, generally, it's, um, it's, a, it's a lower spectrum kind of thinking, a down spectrum kind of thinking, in which I'm allowing my emotions to emerge and I'm allowing emotional similarity between two memories that are in other respects completely different. I may be thinking as a graduate student in computing about an abstract problem involving communication in a network like the ARPANET or uh, the internet uh, in which uh, uh, bits get stuck and I may suddenly find myself thinking about traffic uh, on uh, late Friday afternoon in Grand Central Station in Manhattan. And the question is, what, and, and that leads to a new approach. And I write it up, and I prove a theorem, and I publish a paper, and it's like a million other things and in, in, in the sciences and engineering technology. Um, but the question is, where does the analogy come from? And uh, it turns out in many cases, not in every case, that there are emotional similarities. Emotion is a tremendously powerful summarizer, abstractor. We can look at a complex scene involving loads of people rushing back and forth because it's Grand Central Station and, and noisy announcements on difficult to understand loudspeakers and you're being hot and tired and lots of advertisements and and colorful clothing and a million other things and smells and sounds and we, we can take all that or any kind of complex scene or situation, the scene out your window, the scene uh, on the TV when you turn on the news or a million other things and take all those complexities and boil them down to a single emotion. It makes me feel some way. Maybe it makes, makes me happy. It's not very usual to have an emotion as simple as that, but it might be. I um, see my, my kids romping in the backyard and I just feel happy. Usually the emotion that, to which a complex scene is boiled down is more complex than that, is more nuanced, doesn't have a name. It's not just that I'm happy or sad or upset or excited. It's, um, it's, it's a more nuanced, it's a more uh, it's a subtler emotion which is cooked up out of many um, many bits and pieces of uh, of various emotions. But but the distinctive emotion, the distinctive feeling that makes me feel a certain way. The feeling that I get when I look at some scene can be used as a memory cue when I'm in the right frame of mind. And that particular feeling let's say, happiness 147, a particular subtle kind of happiness which is uh, faintly shaded by doubts about the coming week and by uh, serious questions I have about what I'm supposed to do tomorrow morning, but which is encouraged by the fact that my son is coming home tonight and I'm looking forward to seeing him. So that's happiness 147. And it may be that when I look out at some scene and feel happiness 147, that some other radically different scene that also made me feel that way comes to mind. That I, uh, looking out of that complex scene, I think of some abstract problem in network communication, or I think of a mathematics problem, or I think of what color chair we should get for the living room, or one of a million other things, any number of things, can be boiled down in principle, can be reduced, can be summarized or abstracted by the same emotion. Why emotions are so powerful, because 
the, the, the phrase, that makes me feel like X, can apply to so many situations. So many different things give us a particular feeling. It's, and that feeling can drive in a, new, a new analogy. And a new analogy can drive creativity. But the question is, um, where does the new analogy come from? And it seems to come often from these emotional overlaps, from a special kind of remembering. And I can only do that kind of remembering when I'm paying attention to my emotions. We tend to do our best to suppress emotions when we're up-spectrum. We're up-spectrum, we have jobs to do, we have work to do, we have tasks to complete, our minds are moving briskly along, we're energetic. We generally don't like indulging in emotions uh, when, we're, when we're energetic and perky and peppy and we want to get stuff done. Emotions tend to bring thought to a halt. Um, or at any rate to slow us down, it tends to be the case that as we move lower on the spectrum, we pay more attention to emotions. Emotions get a firmer grip on us. And when we're all the way at the bottom of the spectrum, when we are asleep and dreaming, um, it's interesting that although we often think of dreaming as emotionally neutral, except in the rare case of a nightmare or a euphoria dream, and neither of those happens very often. We think of dreams as being sort of gray and neutral, but if you read uh, the, the biological literature and the sleep lab literature, um, uh, you'll find that, that most dreams are strongly colored emotionally. Um, and that's what we would expect. They occur at the bottom of the spectrum. Life becomes more emotional, just as when you're tired, you're more likely to lose your temper. You're more likely to lose your self-control, to be cranky or to yell at your kids or something like that. We, we, we are less self-controlled. We're less self-disciplined. We give freer reign to our emotions as we move down spectrum. And that has a good side. It's not good to yell at your kids, but as you allow your emotions uh, uh, to emerge, you're more likely to remember things that that yield new analogies. You're you're more likely to be reminded in a fresh way of things that that you hadn't thought of together before. So I want to I want to take this into storytelling, which is something we talk about occasionally on the program. Something I'm extremely interested, in, and I know you're interested as well. I I want to give you a couple of. Uh, a couple of proofs for what you just said from my own experience. One is certainly writer's block, the blank piece of paper that confronts a writer uh, on a on a bright uh, Monday morning at, at 8.30 a.m. And that challenge yeah. is is well known. It's a, it's a cliche, but I think <laughs> right. it's true. Yeah. It's true. And and that's why. Absolutely. That's why Hemingway said, which I think is a you know is a genius idea. He he said, always stop writing when you know what's going to happen next, and that right. is what allows you to get back into that storytelling mind, that drowsier, emotional, more open, creative mind. And the other thing it makes me think of is the role of music. A lot of writers, and I've done this myself often, not always, but often, will use music as a way to jumpstart their creativity. And that's also consistent with your, your story because it's basically saying the music, which is full of emotional associations, full of right. memories, sort of frees up our mind to get into that more down-spectrum uh, feeling, which allows us to associate and be more it's creative. It's a fascinating example because the only thing music can communicate is emotion. I mean, it can't speak to us, obviously. It can't lay out right. propositions or make assertions or tell jokes. Dealt jokes in a certain sense, but uh, but basically, what music does is suggest emotions, and it can suggest an enormous range of emotions. Exactly as you say, it can uh, put us in a in a mood or make us feel in a in a way that we're not accustomed to feeling. That's not our usual state of mind. That's not our usual mood. And when that happens. Uh, ideas, recollections yep. can emerge that don't usually show up and that uh, that spur us on the way to uh, so I, to new to, to new and to new and different thoughts and ideas. So I want to tie. I mean, this. it's interesting with Hemingway. Uh, you know, just parenthetically, it's interesting you should mention Hemingway. I mean, one one associates Hemingway um, 
his very best work, his the the short stories, in, in, in my view, that he that he wrote in the first ten years of his career um, in Paris, his Paris short stories, and one associates him with a rigid uh, agenda um, every morning, or at least this is what he says. I mean, maybe it only happened one morning out of two, but he gives us the impression every morning uh, he gets up, he 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 walks a couple of blocks, he 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 trudges upstairs to his unheated garret, uh, he makes a fire. Uh, he unloads some oranges from his pocket, and he sharpens his pencil with his penknife, and he sits down and he gets to work. And um, and he works he works hard like that all day. And on the one hand, you say, well, a person is not in the mood for creative writing to do his best creative writing early in the morning. Your your emotions are uh, are firmly disciplined, held in check. They can't get out. Uh, but it's interesting that much of Hemingway's originality in his first stylistic phase was precisely this tightly reined-in feeling that his prose gives you. Um, certainly, there are there there are deep emotions simmering under the surface, but it's exactly Sparse. the fact Spartan. that they are beneath the surface, <laughs> rather than uh, rather than hung out to dry on you know on the surface of the prose. That makes his writing so powerful, and uh, I think it probably has something to do with the way he manipulated his own spectrum. Not really on purpose, but he probably had some awareness. I mean, he was a sharp guy, probably generally knew what was going on. Well, I certainly agree with you that his best work were those short stories. I've, I've read a lot of his novels when I was younger, and thinking back on them, I, I have no interest in reading them again, but I have some interest in in the short stories. <laughs> it's interesting. I have a, I have a similar feeling, although... Um, I can't extend it to his, his first novel, and to a lesser extent, his second, um, "The Sun Also Rises" and "A Farewell to Arms." I find radically more readable than anything else he ever wrote in the way of novels for the rest of his life. Yeah. And um, it's too bad that his career should have been biased like that. And yet, one is grateful for uh, for what he did, what achieve, can, yeah. which is plenty. But I, I, I want to take. I want to talk about. Your storytelling and and mine as well, which is which is and tied into an idea that's in the book, which is over time, meaning the last three or four hundred century, three or four hundred years, uh, our culture has become increasingly enamored with what you call up spectrum thinking, the more analytical, logical kind, and less yeah. um, respectful of the emotional storytelling kind, and in economics, it it manifests itself in a, a disregard for people like Adam Smith and, and F.A. Hayek and, a, and an honoring of people like Paul Samuelson and others who have, who have added mathematics to economics, sometimes uh, fruitfully, but often, to my mind, not much advancing our understanding. But it's to put that to the side, it's certainly the case that storytelling is less uh, respected than analytical thing, thinking in our current culture. And I'm thinking about an earlier book of yours, which was 1939, which is a book about the New York World's Fair, and it's a wonderful book. And in that book, you mix observations about the fair with a, with a, a narrative story. And I've done something similar in my novels. I write novels that illuminate economic – try to illuminate economic ways of thinking and teach the reader things. And I've often wondered whether as much fun as those were, were to write, and I assume 1939 was fun to write for you – I wonder if we uh, handicapped the reach of the book, uh, of those books, by mixing in those two types of thinking, which, I, I mean, just to put it one way, one publisher that turned it down said, well, I wouldn't know where to put it. I wouldn't know what section of the bookstore to put it in. And I thought, well, yeah. that's a, that seems like a feature, not a bug to me. I understand why you, you like to sell books. Not so much, actually, as it turns out, most of the time. They don't try that hard. But but I understand that you do have to put it somewhere, but you could put it in fiction and then and advertise it as it's an unusual fiction book or put it in economics yeah. and say, but it's also a story. Uh, that doesn't appeal to many people. And many people, I think, find it jarring. So talk about those two things, the evolution of our culture toward – analytical upspectrum thinking and uh, the, the way it affects, say, storytelling and communicating in, in these kind of books. Well, what you, what you say about the bookstore reminds me so uh, strikingly of, of a message I try and get across to, uh, to my students 
uh, but which jars radically with the message they receive from the educational establishment, which is that uh, it's not natural to believe that you are what you major in. The idea that a person has one area in which yeah. he's brilliant and everything else is just irrelevant yeah. is absurd. Destructive, um, it horrible. doesn't fit uh, <laughs> successful minds, um, and they've told us, uh, you know, all sorts of people who've achieved all sorts of things have told us of their interests, and there are very damn few of them who are interested in one thing and whose interests don't slope over into other things. I mean, Hemingway was just as interested in hunting and fishing as he was, uh, and for that matter, military history and strategy and uh, camp craft and a whole bunch of other things. Um, as he was in prose and literature, the history of Paris, you know, all all sorts of things anyway. Um, but there is a layer of society, uh, the educational bureaucrat layer that makes up the majors and sort of holds down the administrative positions at the university and many of the faculty positions too. Um, certain people and publishers in publishing industry, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been tremendously lucky, and I've had some extraordinary editors to work, to work with um, in this last book, especially at Norton, but in other places, too. I've been very lucky, but um, I am not so naive as not to have noticed that there are a lot of people in the publishing world uh, who uh, don't have the imagination to be authors, not to put too fine a point on it, who would do... <laughs> have a more focused and narrow view of things. But I'm suggesting they had a point, which is even as painful as it was to hear that, and as easy as it is to dismiss it as unimaginative, and as correct as you are about specializing as an undergraduate, maybe there is something to this idea that mixing up-spectrum and down-spectrum communication is challenging to people. I don't think that's true. I mean, it's an interesting hypothesis and something that ought to be entertained, certainly, not just rejected. But um, I tend to think that um, I tend to think that we have uh, much more flexible and varied minds than we give ourselves credit for. Um, it's true that um, while we're focused on one topic, um, it might be an upspectrum or a mid or a downspectrum topic. We don't bob and dance around the spectrum all that much, but we assume that over the course of the day, we make quick excursions down or up and quick excursions from one subject to another. I think a lot of education is in beating that out of people, is in... Uh, uh, urging people to restrict their view of what they're doing, uh, not to not to get lost in um, the, I, the the culture we've built is intensely hostile to the idea that an expert on one topic can also be an expert on another topic. It it isn't that it rubs people the wrong way; it doesn't rub normal people the wrong way. But the um, the educational bureaucracy. There are there there are people um, who who like organizing and managing and running things. Um, who want everybody to be parked in the right intellectual parking space, and who despise sloppy parking. <laughs> um, I, I think um, we'd make a lot more progress intellectually, scientifically, artistically. If we took it for granted, um, as earlier generations did in the 19th century, if you were uh, if you were an educated person, of course you were interested in science and you read what was happening in science, um, whether you were a newspaper editor or a banker or uh, whatever you were. Um, there were uh, a cluster of areas that constituted culture. It was understood then, and it's still true today. And it was assumed that everybody would be interested in them, not at a, not at the same professional level, but that it was natural to be up to date on what was happening intellectually, artistically, scientifically, musically. Uh, we've lost that, or more like killed it on purpose. And I don't, I don't think that we are thereby acknowledging a psychological reality about human nature. I think it is a psychological reality that people have points on the spectrum that are natural to them. I mean, I know 
for absolute fact that I that there are, I have friends whose minds are high spectrum. That's where their thinking runs. That's where they're comfortable. And that doesn't mean they can't think other ways, but they're not comfortable thinking other ways. Just as I know people who who insist that they can't think in an upspectrum fashion. They, I don't they do often, math. Yeah. They're dumb or they're too, you know, they just don't have the, the brains for it and stuff like that, which is annoying uh, because they've been talked into that by their own teachers, sometimes their own parents. Um, it's true that our personalities run in uh, at some spectrum point, but it's also true that uh, 90% of the value of the human mind is in its flexibility, the fact that it can do so many things, the fact that it isn't a one-trick, a, a, a one, a one-trick outfit. It can do uh, a lot of things, and we tend to suppress that. We don't like it. And we're indebted to people who uh, who are willing to manage and administer, but that also is a personality that has uh, taken its bite out of culture. I certainly think it's true that um, the first thing you mentioned that um, culture has moved up spectrum. I see the uncritical admiration for turning into worship of science uh, all around me. I can see the contrast between when I was a child, uh, and uh, and the climate today, it's gotten worse. Even though uh, when I was a child, there were there, there were there were plenty of people who remembered the Manhattan Project, the origin of nuclear physics, who remembered heroic achievements, the the founding of computing. Today, we're not quite. In uh, we're not quite in as imaginative and productive a time. These things oscillate. We'll be in equally imaginative times again. But it seems that our 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 science worship, our mathematics worship, only increases. And when you talk about the uh, tendency uh, among some people in economics to push things in a mathematical direction. Um, certainly what I found when I was a student years ago, um, interested in economics, took an introductory course, which was the one for science majors, and it, and it turned out merely to be an applied mathematics. It yep. was applied a course in differential equations, yep. and we never learned anything about how people, how an economy actually operates, which is what I hoped we would learn. But you see the same thing in computer science also, in which people are well-trained mathematically, and they... They take these tools for granted, but they'd much rather publish a paper with a lot of theorems and proofs than a paper that simply describes in, in straightforward English what what is going on or what the assertions is, are that they want to make. This is a, a, a powerful tendency, and I think it's done a lot of damage. Well, I, I want to turn to computer science. You, here's a quote from the book. You say, post-Turing thinkers, post-Turing, you're talking about Alan Turing, Post-Turing thinkers decided that brains were organic computers, that computation was a perfect model of what minds do, that minds can be built out of software, and that mind relates to brain as software relates to computer. The most important, most influential, and intellectually most destructive analogy in the last hundred years, the last hundred years at least, close quote. Uh, So you're a skeptic about the ability of uh, artificial intelligence to eventually mimic or emulate a brain. Uh, so talk about why and then why you feel that that analogy is so destructive because it is extremely popular and accepted by many, many people. Not by me, but by many people smarter than I am, actually. So what's wrong with that analogy and why is it destructive? Well, I think you have to be careful in in saying what exactly the analogy is. On the one hand, I think AI has enormous potential in terms of imitating or faking it when it comes to intelligence. Um, I think we'll be able to build software that um, certainly gives you the impression of solving problems in a human-like or in an intelligent way. I think there's a tremendous amount to be done that we haven't done yet. On the other hand, if by if by emulating the mind you mean achieving consciousness uh having feelings awareness um 
I think, as a matter of fact, that uh, that computers will never achieve that. Any any program, any software that you deal with, any robot that you deal with, will always be a zombie, in the sense that in the in in the Hollywood and philosophers' sense of zombie, zombie is very po- popular word in philosophy, in the sense that. Um, its behavior might be very impressive. I mean, you might give it a, a, a difficult mathematics problem to solve or, or read it something from a newspaper and ask it to comment or give it all sorts of uh, tests you think of, and it might pass with flying colors. You might walk away saying, uh, this guy is smarter than my best friend, and you know, I look forward to chatting with him again. But um, when you open up the robot's head, there's nothing in there. There's nothing inside. There's no consciousness. Um, well, you wouldn't see it even if it were there because you don't see it when you open well, a human brain, yeah, um, right? So that's not a good proof. I mean, the, the, the fascinating – No, no, no. That's not a proof at all. That's just a clarification <laughs> of what you. I'm asserting. And then the question is why would one make that assertion? Um, so, so again, what I'm asserting is not that computers are limited in, in the performance they can put on. They will be able to put on very good performances and seem very human-like. However, um, they will never be conscious. They will never feel an emotion. They will never be aware of anything in the sense uh, in which we are aware of things. And why that is, is um, because all, all the evidence that we have, and this is not, this is not really a, a matter of something that is proved or is answered definitively yes or no. It's, a, it's more of a scientific than a mathematical question, a scientific question in which evidence accumulates, and you do your best to figure out which way it's pointing and what the trajectory is. All the evidence that we have suggests that consciousness is an organic phenomenon, is a biophysical phenomenon associated with a very special type of physics and chemistry. The only instance of consciousness that we're aware of in the cosmos, granted we've only looked around on this planet, but at any rate we haven't heard of any other instances so far, and there are many, many kinds of, uh, of life on this planet, but the only consciousness of which we're aware of is associated with highly sophisticated and complicated animals, is associated basically with human-like creatures, of whom there are very few compared to, uh, to the, uh, the, the generations of bacteria, which completely dominate any, any, any list of all life forms. Um, the only place we found consciousness, the only reason we, the only, the only instances of consciousness we have to suspect the only instances of feelings or, or the suspected presence of feelings are associated, every single one, 100% of those instances are associated with human-like animals. That is, a certain kind of uh, carbon chemistry, a certain kind of physics, a certain kind of communication from nerve cell to nerve cell that's electrical on one level and chemical on the level beneath it. If I say, well, sure, but maybe but consciousness could be an abstract phenomenon, um, it's true. Uh, consciousness could be. Uh, rust could be an abstract phenomenon. Uh, greenness could be an abstract phenomenon. Uh, having apples, fruiting out in apples in the fall could be an abstract phenomenon. And it could be that I could make any of those things happen with software if I believed that rust or fruiting out in apples were abstract I could tell my graduate students, get to work and write software that I can download that will make my computer rusty or will make it fruit out in apples. Um, the proper answer would be, we'll try it if you like, but all the evidence that we have suggests that fruiting out in apples or rusting or being bright green are chemical properties. They, they have to do with particular kinds of chemistry and physics. They're not random properties. That, uh, they're, they're not like uh, gravitational attraction, which itself is associated with mass, but which is a fairly abstract property. They're not abstract in that sense. All we, we, if, if, you, if you ask us to list instances of, of rusty things that have no iron content and 
weren't exposed to a certain kind of oxidation, the examples are zero. There is not a single such instance. There is not a single such instance of anything fruiting out in apples that isn't an apple tree, or that doesn't have the biochemistry and physics of an apple tree. Nor is there a single instance of anything being conscious or having feelings that is not a human being or an animal very similar to human beings in the complexity of its nervous system and its physiology in general. So the, the idea that we could make computers conscious by dint of, of, of building the right software is an assertion which is allowable in principle, but seems completely random, totally unsupported. Um, if you make this assertion, that is, despite the evidence of 100% of all conscious things on Earth that have ever been observed, I think that someday computers will be conscious. The onus is on you to give me some reason to think that's true. You know, I don't have to prove it's false. Um, all the empirical evidence we have suggests that it's false. Okay, so all the empirical evidence we have suggests that consciousness is something that happens to animals, so not boxes of silicon and not bird cages and not uh, fruit trees, but animals. So, uh, you know, if you think otherwise, you've got to explain what makes you think so. And that, that proof or that argument has never been forthcoming. So in a uh, essay I wrote recently, I, the example I gave related to this, I'll put a link up to the essay, is um, is it possible that uh, that a uh, some form of artificial intelligence, whether it's a, a vacuum cleaner, say, that goes around your house and knows to avoid uh, corners or to, to reorient itself or some other piece of smart technology, will it ever have a yearning, say a robot that that aids you in your daily tasks that, that will come, that's going to, that's coming. Will such a robot ever yearn to be a driverless car? Will it ever say, you know, I just wish I'd been a driverless car. Now we have trouble imagining, I have trouble imagining that. And I, so I like you reject that argument. The, the argument that the other side would give is that, well, we just haven't gotten far enough. The brain is just a giant computer. It's a bunch of neurons, a bunch of on off switches. That's what a computer is. Yes. The, the, the chemistry and physics are complicated, but eventually, just like people said, we'd never figure out, say, speech recognition or facial recognition. We've solved, we made progress on both of those fronts, some quite impressive. It's just a matter of time before we get that yearning, feeling, emotional side to consciousness that you think is only present in carbon-based life. Yeah, you see, it's a com it's complete nonsense. It's it's one non sequitur after another. It's a non argument. You could say the a computer is like a brain because it's a bunch of off on off switches. But that's absurd. I mean, I could say the railway system is like a brain because it's a bunch of on off switches. The brain is not a bunch of on off switches. That is a ridiculous claim. Although certainly people in computation make it often. It's patently absurd. It's, uh, it's a collection of neurons which have very specific chemistries, chemical makeups. Um, the, the, uh, the neurons have complex behaviors. They're not merely on or off. They generate, they, they, gener they generate chemical signals and pass signals downwind under certain circumstances. Um, the, the resemblances between, uh, a brain and a computer are, are minimal, uh, trivial and superficial. There are a million on off switches in the world. I mean, I could look at my house and say it's nothing but on off switches. Here I see an on off switch right here that turns on the light. There are some lights over this desk area. And across the room, I see more on off switches that control the lights somewhere else. And here are more on-off switches for more lights. And in the kitchen, there's an on-off switch that has to do with the garbage disposal for some reason. And another on-off switch downstairs that, that controls this furnace. It's a cutoff for the furnace. So I could say, look, when you get right down to it, you really want to understand this in a proper abstract way. What is a house? It's a bunch, it's a bunch of on-off switches. It's just like a brain. And by the same token, I can say, what is a brain? It's a bunch of on-off switches. Yeah, the, but, but, but to be absurd, fair, but, it's an absurd but David, David, to be fair to the other side, and again, I don't, I don't agree with it, but to be fair to the other side, I think that the, the leap of creativity that they're making, that the other side is making, which is, which is a little more fair than the house analogy, is that the, the machine, 
does many things the brain does. It calculates, right? It makes abs- it doesn't make abstract calculations, but it does make uh, algorithmic calculations the same way you and I do in our upscale up upspectrum moments. So I think that's it where it really got its <laughs> well, that's where it got its selling point, right? This idea yeah, that artificial it, intelligence it, it, after a while it, it, is going to do something. It does arithmetic, but when you say like we do, that's that's just not true. When you do arithmetic, you think about what you're doing. You're aware of what you're doing. You know that what you're doing is correct, or you might know that you, that, that you went off the track somewhere and your answer is probably going to be wrong and you should go back. You're capable of changing the method you use. You're capable of saying, I learned some other way to do long division and why am I doing this? You're capable of saying, why should I do this at all? I have a, I have a calculator or I have a computer. I don't need to do this. You're, ca- you're capable of writing numbers and saying, why is a five so much more complex than a one? Why is a two relatively complicated, but a seven is simple? That, that is your conscious. You're a conscious agent, which is radically different than a machine. It's true a computer can do arithmetic, and so can a calculator made out of gears and sprockets, and so can an abacus. All sorts of machines can do arithmetic, but it's got nothing to do with the mind because they do arithmetic in a way that's so radically different from the way we do. Namely, they do it in a zombie-like state. They do it unconsciously. They do it without awareness, without the creative ability to understand what they're doing, to change what they're doing, to evaluate what they're doing, to feel what they're doing. And you may be doing a long problem and you get to the final answer and somebody says, that's right, and you're happy. The computer doesn't have that capability. It doesn't do, it does arithmetic in a way that isn't at all the way you do because as far as it's concerned, it's never heard of arithmetic. It has no concept of a number. It doesn't know what plus means. It has no idea what it's doing. It doesn't know that it's manipulating numbers. It might as well be manipulating spreadsheets or designs for furniture or profiles of movie stars of the 1930s. It, it's, it doesn't, doesn't resemble what you do at all, except in a radically superficial way. So I'm going I'm to pile on. I'm gonna, now that I've, I've dutifully uh, challenged your view, I'm going to pile on and add to it, which is you speak uh, in the book, you write in the book very eloquently about what I would call the aha moment. You didn't call it that, but how so many creative moments in, in science or in literature and elsewhere are just, quote, out of the blue. And I think of Andrew Wiles, one of the most moving things I've ever seen is when Andrew Wiles had, quote, proven Fermat's last th- theorem, and then that proof turned out to be wrong. And I, for a long, long time, it was months, I can't remember if it was a year or more than a year, but it, it was a long, long time. It appeared he had just simply failed. So he had gotten all the accolades and all the glory for solving the greatest mathematical problem of all time. And then it turned out not to be true, and he had no solution to it. And in the um, documentary about this, he, he says, and then one day I was sitting at my desk, and I was looking off in the distance. I was thinking about X, and he suddenly saw the right way to fix the proof. And it's, it's incredibly moving. And I think um, it's as if a computer trying to solve some problem, having worked on all night, and then the electricity gets shut off accidentally, but you turn it on in the morning and then it just gets the answer right away. And that just probably isn't going to be the way it happens. In fact, it seems to be impossible. Um, Let's turn to um, the so-called singularity. Uh, You didn't say why this analogy of, of the brain to a computer is destructive. Does that have anything to do with your views on the singularity, this idea that somehow artificial intelligence will outstrip uh, human capability and will become somehow like a kidney source for uh, out of run, you know, out of control uh, robots or artificial intelligence? Are you worried about that? And uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I am. Although the first reason I think this view is destructive is just because it builds ignorance, and and nothing that suppresses knowledge and substitutes ignorance can be good. If um, if teachers go around teaching their students as they do at Yale and a million other universities and high schools and all over the landscape, uh, the mind is like software and the brain is like a computer. It's uh, a falsehood. It's uh, it's a lie, not a deliberate lie in a moral sense. Um, it's a falsehood. And um, not only is it wrong in itself, but it suppresses the search for truth. A few students are going to be smart enough to say, oh, wait a minute, quite add up. But most people believe what they're told. Most students believe what they're taught. 
and um, uh, those are a lot of minds we're taking out of action by by teaching them falsehoods. And uh, at at least at least, if such people would say, uh, there are some a majority who say a mind is like software, but there is a significant minority uh, who say that's nonsense. That would at least uh, give the mind a little uh, ledge of opportunity, but um, most teachers are are too sh certain of these falsehoods uh, even to question them. But there's uh, there's an even greater danger, which is that we start um, incorporating circuitry, cells, computers into living human beings. And um, this is transhumanism now, which which we had a an episode with with Richard Jones. We'll put a link up to it for listeners. Yeah, um, this is very much on the on the singularity agenda, on the Kurzweil agenda, um, and so we build an improved human being, and uh, technology itself improves. That's in the nature of technology, and so. Um, you know, I can, I can, if I've got $5,000 to spend, maybe I can buy an extra 10 IQ points for my first kid. But um, three years later, uh, that same $5,000 will buy, you know, 30 extra IQ points. So I know the older child is strictly less intelligent than his younger brother. He's just not as advanced, and he never will be unless I operate on him. I mean, maybe his future is constant surgery as I take out the old um, uh, chip and slip yeah. on a, in a new one, and he puts on a new personality. Because, of course, your IQ affects everything, every aspect of your personality. I mean, that would be a nightmare. Assume that he keeps his old personality, which assumes that each generation of children you produce is smarter than the previous one. And for the first time, we have actually obsolete human beings. Um, we have uh, we have almost planned obsolescence in the sense that we know perfectly well that the next generation of of, of humanware, of chipware, whatever it is for a brainware, is going to be more advanced than this generation. Um, this kind of toying with human life, um, the toying with human life, which is so fundamentally uh, fascist in its inclination. I'm not calling Kurzweil a fascist. But there is a philosophical inclination which says um, our thoughts transcend uh, the mere uh, individual lives of particular human beings. Uh, we, we exist at a higher level, um, uh, I and my followers, and uh, we can think of much bigger pictures than, than the ordinary normal human being can do. That, that is, to me, um, uh, an unacceptable way to think, uh, any evil, morally evil, unacceptable way to think. Uh, from my standpoint, I think of it as un-Jewish because I am a Jew. But I know of no Western moral system, uh, whether Christian or philosophical, um, that will allow this kind of um, instrumentalist uh, objectification of human life, which is identical, I think, to transhumanism and to the to the whole drift of uh, of the uh, implantation of computers into human beings, the reckless morally reckless um, toying with human life in that way. I'm not sure it's going to be stoppable. It doesn't seem to be stoppable, right? If you start by thinking about steroids and sports and plastic surgery and the arts, um, you know, for actors and actresses, the way we use technology to enhance ourselves constantly, uh, whether it's the smartphone in our pocket or the Whatever it can, used to be, the calculator yeah, in our yeah, briefcase. It's just yeah, very yeah. hard to turn to say no to those improvements for human beings. Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, I could say that um, steroids and plastic surgery are still very narrow phenomena, and you've got to be pretty crazy. I mean, you have to be insanely obsessed with. Uh, you have to be in moral no man's land in terms of the importance to you of some aspect of your career in order to go that route. I think most people would probably still reject it. I think you're right that it's very difficult to see how transhumanism will defeat it. Uh, but I still think it is defeatable. 
And the only way to do, to do it is to do just what you're doing, is to talk about it. I think it will win insofar as we don't think about it. In that case, we'll just slide into it. Um, you know, we'll just uh, give in to the, to the uh, professor of feel goods of the future. If we talk about it, we won't do it. Um, the, the hope of the singularity people is that uh, they won't catch people's attention and um, they won't get any serious objections because they won't awaken any serious thought. Let's close with this quote from the book, uh, and I'll let you comment on it. You write, to learn how to communicate with their fellow human beings, young people must turn off Facebook, shut down their computers, and look people in the eye, listen to their voices, and watch their gestures. They must look for subtleties and ponder their meanings. They must learn to read. Not words, which are easy, but people. And that requires a whole childhood and adolescence to learn. Some people never manage it, although they try this sort of reading. The important kind requires intelligence and talent, not just a few years' dogged practice. By allowing children to play with computers when they should be dealing with each other face-to-face, we are damaging the most important learning process of their lives. I'm very sympathetic to that view. Uh, We watched almost no television in our house uh, growing up. Uh, my children, and uh, I thought that was a good thing. And yet, yeah. as they get older and as our digital lives get more vivid and common and ubiquitous, I find it – I found it – now they're mostly out of the house, but I found it more and more difficult to keep them away from screens and more and more face-to-face. Um, a little bit like this issue we're talking about of transhumanism, very hard for people to resist these temptations. Do you want to react to that? Um, I think the process of walling children off is doomed. You just can't do it. Uh, it will never work. I mean, I, when I was a child, I, there were families here and there that said our kids will not watch NHTV and it worked while the children, while the kids were small, you know, obviously and didn't go out to their friend's house and were easy to, uh, to command, but children don't stay that way. But I, I do think that, um, I do think that children that uh, who who have a a solid foundation in what you might call humanistic love of life are will never be damaged by the world at large. Uh, will be offered all sorts of attractive nuisances and will indulge in some of them. I mean, we grow up and we need to try these things. But their basic belief in in themselves and uh, in their love for their families and their uh, their the basic structure of their personalities can't ever be damaged if they emerge from young childhood with a with a, a solid a whole personality. It's never gonna it's never gonna crack. That's my that's my belief. It, it's even my observation to a limited extent. I've been able to look around it's 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 a hopeful and optimistic view it's got a lot of hopeful optimism as opposed to realism in it Uh, but i think it may be true i hope it's true my guest today has been david galernter his book is the tides of mind david thanks for being part of econ talk thank you this is econ talk part of the library of economics and liberty For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.